0: welcome to Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I'm hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On September 2nd, 2021, we talked with Dr. Aditya Sridhar, a senior scientist in the Organovir labs at University of Amsterdam, who is using gut, airway, and brain organoid model systems to study the coronavirus infection. Dithya has a master's in biomedical engineering from University of Oxford and a PhD from the University of Twente, focusing on 3D tissue culture models. Uh, Nice to talk with you today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So my my name is Aditya Sridhar. You can call me Adi. Uh, I'm originally from India, from the south of India in Chennai. So that's where I studied. I did my uh, bachelor's there. And after my bachelor's, I moved to the UK and I did my master's in the University of Oxford. Uh, So my bachelor's and my master's were in uh, biomedical engineering. So uh, more towards the engineering side, uh, looking at all the different uh, equipment used in hospitals and so on. And after my master's, uh, I really enjoyed the research project I worked on. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, I decided I'm going to do a PhD. Uh, I was looking for a lot of PhD positions and I found one in the Netherlands. Uh, and in the Netherlands, uh, you're paid as a PhD or you're, you're an employee, you're not a student, you're not on a stipend. So I chose to, to move here. And then I did my PhD uh, in something completely unrelated to virology. So it was a lot of electrochemistry, a bit of lab on a chip. And my PhD was in the University of Trenta, um, close to the German border. And after my PhD, I wasn't sure what, what I wanted to do. Uh, so I worked in a company as a consultant for a year. And then after that, four years ago, a bit over four years ago, I moved to Amsterdam. And I've been working in a virology group. And uh, that's what I do now.
0: How did you first become interested in sort of the science, uh, engineering side of things? Um, Were there people in your family that did um, sort of science or was it through school? How did you first become interested in it?
1: Yeah, I think uh, early on it was, uh, I can't really pinpoint an interest because I think it's just one of those things that just happens in India, you know, if you're, if you want to study, you do either engineering or medicine. And, uh, yeah, medicine required a lot more effort than I was willing to put into. So engineering was thrust upon me, let's say. Uh, I think one of my family members living in the U.S., I just said biomedical engineering has good scope in terms of finding jobs. So I said, yeah, I would give it a go. And, uh, yeah, I just did it because that's what everybody did. Uh, But I think during my master's, I really enjoyed my research project. And it was kind of funny because uh, there was something very simple. You know, I was uh, doing some cell staining and I was trying to figure out why my stainings were not working. And I spent, uh, you know, days and weeks trying to figure that out. And in the end, it turned out it was something as simple as not having the right filter on the right microscope. And uh, that kind of troubleshooting aspect really got me interested in science. And I said, OK, you know, I really enjoy doing this, all this troubleshooting so I would like to do a PhD. And I think that's really when my interest in science really uh, peaked. Uh, you know, my, my time in the UK. And I think a nice thing about studying in Oxford was that they, they also did a lot of public uh, communication activities. Uh, so I, you know, I used to attend talks uh, from other fields. Uh, you could go for a talk in quantum physics from the physics department. They would put it in layman's terms and I could attend talks from Richard Dawkins and so on. And listening to all these uh, really got me much more interested. And I think that my year there really shaped me towards science.
0: Right. And so you kind of talked a little bit about how you've had sort of a a bit of a winding path. Can you kind of reflect a little bit? So you've done sort of some academics and then you were doing some consulting work, you know, um, at a company, things like that. What are the different environments like and what I guess, what do you like um, about where you are now?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the environments have been quite different, uh, even between the academic labs, you know, each lab has its own culture. Uh, and I think the culture that we have in our lab is really what I like a lot. Uh, We're very free to work on what we want to do. Uh, we have a very uh, nurturing group. So I, I really like that aspect. And of course, uh, I've been learning about viruses and, and I love studying about them. So that, that also helps in terms of the motivation. Uh, in terms of working for a company, it was it was completely different. You're you're, you're more client oriented, especially as a consultant. Uh, you're very operating on very strict deadlines. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, weeks to months. Uh, so yeah, that, that's kind of different from academics, where your deadlines tend to be much longer. Uh, you know, you're operating in years, uh, most of the time, especially if you're a PhD student. Right. Uh, yeah. So that that was different, and yeah, I think just the the fact that you have a client. Uh, to face to and you know and a lot of the times uh, they're paying money so they don't care they'll sometimes call you on the weekend and you just have to (laughs) respond Uh, those kind of aspects were yeah it was different but I also really enjoyed my time as a consultant because I think that it it was still not very far off from academics because it was uh, writing business plans for uh, small and medium enterprises Uh, it was also a little bit of grant writing so all those experiences that I had there is, is really useful now. It was definitely a different experience uh, working in a company and uh, I, w- I would definitely recommend people to you know try their uh, feet outside of academics before they decide where they want to go.
0: When you are going to these different places people often wonder of you know, what you should be looking for so what is a good lab what is a good mentor what's a good position so what what do you look for sort of in a position?
1: Yeah I think. That's a very difficult question because uh, of course uh, you normally have a half an hour to 45 minute interview and you don't get a whole picture of what the lab is going to be like. Uh, I think one of the things that, you know, uh, I, for myself, but also for the people that come for an interview, I always make sure that uh, the people that come for an interview here have time with our PhDs and our students to sit down and talk in private. Uh, I think that's very important to, if, you, if you're if you talking in front of the supervisors, then you get a different picture. And of course, when we want to recruit someone, we sell our group as the best there is. So we always make sure that there's an opportunity for uh, people to go and talk to uh, uh, some of the PhDs that you know, have been working here for two or three years uh, to really get a picture of what the lab is like and uh, whether it's an environment that they want to work in. And I think that that's that's very important just to talk to the people that are working there, but also make sure you talk privately.
0: And so can you tell us a little bit then about, you know, the virus that you're working on and sort of the types of experiments that you're doing?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, so the viruses that we study, we primarily study picoronoviruses. Okay. Uh, uh, so we study enterovirus 71, 68, paracoviruses. Uh, so what we are interested in is uh, the entry sites. So we're interested in the airway and the gut, which are assumed to be the primary entry sites. And from there on, we're interested in how they get to the secondary side of infection, which is the brain. Then how do they interact with the immune cells along the way? But we also do a little bit of work. So primarily focused on piconoviruses, but we do a little bit of work on HIV. So I think we have one, maybe two projects on HIV. Uh, one project on sars coronavirus, of course. A couple of projects on CMV and RSV, but our primary focus on piconoviruses. My main role was, when I joined, was to uh, set up human models for studying these viruses. Because for a lot of the picornoviruses, you don't really have an animal model. So, for example, for pericavirus, we don't really know what the receptor is. So when we don't know the receptor, we can't make a mice model to study it. So we started looking into these organoid models. Uh, so stem cell-derived organoids. Uh, so either from adult stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. And what I've done over the last four years is set up these models. So we, we have an organoid model system for the airway we have a model system for the gut and for the brain. So we have all all the different organs covered. And in some cases we can also make make them paired so we can make it paired airway paired paired gut. So it also allows us to study in the same donor how it behaves in different organ systems. Uh, So that's really what we do. We try to use these organoid models for studying these viruses. And so it kind of fits nicely with my background because my background has uh, been a lot in in vitro modeling. So, during my master's, I worked in a tissue engineering group. Uh, and then during my PhD, I worked in a lab on a chip group. So, we did a lot of organ on a chip uh, work there. Uh, so, I set up a 3D culture model for studying uh, cancer uh, and also developing tools for uh, assessing these models. So, that kind of flows into here. So, if you think about it, these organoid models are not really made for virology, uh, they are models that are built for developmental biology. Uh, and so, we need to make modifications. To make them suitable for virology so my engineering background in that sense really helps so one of the things when I joined this group was that they said we don't need another virologist you know we, we have enough virologists we need someone from a different perspective which I really liked and that that really helps because we have virologists and clinicians in our group and then my engineering background and we put all of this expertise together to to build an optimal model system let's say for virology and uh, my engineering background still stays uh, because we continue building these models but of course I've also, focus my attention more towards studying these viruses. Uh, but we are also making an organ on a chip system where we make a gut brain axis. So, we have a re- recent EU project uh, called Gut Vibrations, where we try to make a complex gut brain axis model where we have the gut mucosal model mo- system with the gut associated immune cells. Then, we have a lymphatic or vascular system, and then we have a blood brain barrier and then a brain organoid. So, you know, then I also continue doing what I did but then with the focus on virology.
0: Right, right. Yeah, very interesting. What do you say to people that, you know, when you talk about your organoid systems and they say, well, how relevant is this really to virus infection in a person? Um, you know, what can you actually learn from, in a way, an organoid system that you can't necessarily learn from, say, a mouse model or by, by basically taking samples from people? So what, what are the advantages to the system in a way?
1: Yeah. So I think there's, there's, there's two things here. Uh, one is that um, uh, people often forget uh, how these model systems work, right? So there are different types of models and uh, most of the models that we work on uh, are called discrimination models. So they're very good at uh, modeling a very particular aspect. Uh, and then you have high fidelity models that, you know, then reflect the whole uh, picture of the whole organism. And you know, you can never have a high fidelity model of a human unless you have a patient in the clinic, right? So what we work with is discrimination models. And I think that's something that we also forget when it comes to animal models, is that we extrapolate what we see in these animal models to the human situation, but we have to realize that they're discrimination models. And that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that the the model system that we work with, uh, the reason we work with these organoids is that they reflect a human phenotype. Uh, because they're, you know, patient-derived. And what they can also then do is we can have donor-to-donor differences, whereas a lot of animal models tend to be uh, clonal and, you know, the, the same uh, genetic background, which which is not the case here, which which also implies that the costs uh, go up. Uh, but that, so those kind of things are not, of course, possible in animal models to, to really have the human phenotype and uh, to to have this donor-to-donor variability uh, I think uh, age is still a little bit far off, uh, but hopefully in the future, we can also model that because, again, for a lot of these viruses, age is important. I think one of the questions that we always get in terms of these model systems is that people always go, but this is missing or that is missing. You know, immediately people go, there's no immune system. But one thing to realize is that we are catching up on several billion years of evolution. You know, we can't uh, recapitulate nature uh, in, in a few years in the lab. And these are things that we're building on. And, you know, perhaps uh, 50, 100 years from now, we will have a human in a lab system to study these viruses. But for now, these models are discrimination models. And we have to, you know, see them in that light. So they're really good at mimicking certain aspects. And we have to use it for that. I think one example is for polio, for example, you know, so well studied. But when using these organoid models, they were able to find a new open reading frame and also show that this open reading frame is necessary for infection. Uh, So, you know, so those kind of things you can start answering when you have a a human phenotype uh, in your model system.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we always counter with, you know, it's a way to generate hypotheses that you might not essentially be able to even come across or even think about just using human samples, right? I mean, you can go back to the human patients and see if the hypothesis is true, but a lot of times if you don't have the model system, whatever it is, you, you don't actually you know, generate the hypothesis at all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes you also have to realize that you don't want a perfect model, right? Uh, if you, if you think about polio, for example, uh, polio is interesting because of the acute placid paralysis, but it causes that in 0.1% to 1% of the case. So if you have a perfect model uh, that can only mimic that 0.1 to 1% of the case, then the amount of money you need to put into before you can, you know, do anything is 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 going to be monumental. Right. Uh, so so it, it's important to see with with in under what context. And I think it's also important when we go and present these results in these conferences, we have to. Uh, make sure that we describe what the limits are of our system. And I think that's sometimes often uh, times people don't do that. Uh, and that's where all these criticism come from. I think if you put it up front that, you know, we understand what the limits of our model are, and we're only using it for answering these very particular questions, then, then it's perfectly valid.
0: So can you describe sort of like using, when you build these organized systems, what are the kind of experiments that you do with viruses? So, you know, you infect them and you know, what do you do?
1: Yeah, so uh, for us, uh, there are several things that we're interested in. So first thing is we're interested in is entry. Uh, So when we look at the primary replication side, uh, what we're interested in is we're interested in looking at uh, how does the virus enter? So I'm not talking purely about the receptor, but even one step further, one step earlier. So which side? So uh, for these, these organoid models, they are, they're polarized. So we can make a polarized airway epithelium or the gut epithelium. And what we can look at then is whether the virus enters from the luminal side or the subluminal side. And uh, intuitively, for, a, uh, for an airway virus or a gut virus, we'd expect it to enter from the luminal side because that is the first side it encounters. But for a lot of viruses, we see that actually that's not the case. Uh, for coracovirus, for instance, we see it, it uh, enters from the basolateral side. So then, then it generates an hypothesis, okay, if it gener- it, 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 you know, the receptors needed is on the basolateral side, how does the virus get there? Then you know, we can say, okay, does it interact with you know, immune cells, for example, antigen presenting cells, like dendritic cells that capture the virus, take them across, or in the case of polio, for example, it goes via the M cells into the uh, basolateral side of the gut and then initiates infection. So that's one thing we look at. And obviously we're interested in which receptor is being used. Uh, we are interested in looking at the cell tropism. So the nice thing about our organoid systems is that uh, they're they have they're not homogeneous, so they're heterogeneous. They, they recapitulate the cellular phenotypes of the organ in question. So we look at that, which cell types are being infected. And I think that also helps us try to understand the receptor. Uh, so it helps us discriminate uh, in terms of the receptors based on cell type. Uh, we look the interested in the immune response, uh, so the innate immune response, so what, what kind of responses. Uh, so, for example, when we look at Paracovirus 1 and Paracovirus 3, Paracovirus uh, 3 tends to cause much more severe disease uh, in neonates, and then you know, when we start studying these models, we also start noticing that same as COVID, uh, which is, becomes immune disease, we have hints that Paracovirus 3 uh, might be an immune disease because it seems to cause a much stronger immune response Mm-hmm. than pericol virus type 1. Uh, so those, those are the things we're interested in. And of course, we're also interested in, like I said, with building these organo chip systems. How does the virus get from the primary side to the secondary side? So then we start incorporating dendritic cells, for example, uh, see if they capture the virus and then transmit them from the gut to the brain, for instance.
0: Interesting. And do you do um, things like single cell RNA-seq? Like How do you look at the programs that are inside of your organ type?
1: Yeah, so we don't do single-cell RNA-seq. So, for instance, for uh, cell tropism, we do simple things like immunostaining. Uh, we do RNA-seq uh, when we have very specific questions to answer because it is expensive yeah. to do RNA-seq uh, and single-cell, of course. But then on top of that, our organoid cultures themselves are quite expensive uh, in terms of the media, in terms of the uh, consumables that we use for the cultures. Uh, so, we, so in our, for example, in our SARS coronavirus work, we are doing RNA-seq. To get a better picture of what happens upon infection, uh, and also uh, when we treat treat the cultures with uh, specific uh, substances. So in this case, we're looking at uh, breast milk, and what is the effect of breast milk on the infection of uh, SARS coronavirus? So there we do RNA mm-hmm. Uh In but most of the time we try to look at uh, cytokine panels, uh, uh, and then we do immunostaining, and of course we do PCR and uh, we culture the viruses. Uh, uh, we are a culture lab. We started as a culture lab, so we always do uh, titrations.
0: So what, what do you see yourself doing in the future? Are you going to sort of stay at your current job? Are you looking to sort of get your own lab? Uh, what are you sort of thinking about?
1: Yeah, so I, I, for me, I would I would like staying here, so it, it's going great. Uh, in the four years, we have done a lot of work together. Uh, I Both my... Um, uh, PIs are quite supportive uh, of uh, my position, so uh, they let me uh, lead some of the work. So I also get some out uh, 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 author publications, which is, of course, necessary for my career. Uh, I love the work that we do and the environment that we have. Uh, it's a really nice work environment. So in that sense, I, I really enjoy it. So I have a contract for another, I think, three years. Uh, I'm actually in the process of applying for my own grants. Uh, So I think within this group, I would like to set up my own research line. Uh, So I think beginning of next year, I'll be applying for my own grant to, to, you know, to become a PI.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about, so the U.S. system is obviously not like that in a way. Like we tend to have sort of like one PI, one lab more. So can you talk a little bit about the system in the Netherlands and how you have, I guess, like larger groups in a way?
1: Yeah, so it, it's uh, it's a it's of course it's a bit different. Uh, it's also a bit different here because we're an academic hospital, and uh, there are different routes. Of course, uh, uh, both the PIs I work under are also medical specialists. So one is a pediatric infectious disease specialist, another one is a, a clinical virologist. So that's really their primary role, and then then they also do research. Uh, so then there's opportunities to be a PI, but and as a department, uh, as a department of medical microbiology, there are several PIs uh, that work in this department and it's a huge department. Uh, so our primary goal is, of course, in the clinic, but then we also do research. And then so that that allows for there to be PIs. And it's not enough if you're a PI in the Netherlands, because if you need to uh, have a PhD, the PhD needs to be promoted. And that can only be done if you're a full professor. So you're always under a professor until you're, you become one yourself. So And they have a kind of hands-off approach because we almost uh, hardly interact with, with the, the professor that promotes our PhDs, for instance. Uh, so that's, that's how the system works. And uh, to, to become a PI here really is you bring your own money in. Uh, and if you bring your own money in, then uh, they're happy to make you a PI. Uh, some, some universities in the Netherlands also have a tenure-track system. Uh, but we do a lot of collaboration. So for us, you know, having multiple PIs within a group is not really an issue. We can collaborate within the group, but we also collaborate with groups from other departments here or from other countries. So we have a very collaborative environment, so it doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. It's just uh, on paper your PI, which is, of course, nice to have.
0: So um, I guess in finishing up, can you tell us sort of what it's been like the last uh, year, year and a half um, for you to be a virologist? Um, you know, during the pandemic, it's sort of a um, unusual time to be a virologist or to be a scientist. <laughs> what has it been like for you?
1: Yeah, of course, it's, it's been a very interesting time because the, the minute people realize you're a virologist, uh, I always tell this, like in the last year, everybody's a virologist, so our jobs are becoming redundant. Uh, Everybody seems to know more about uh, viruses than we do. Uh, So we always start getting into, I mean, most of the time it's well-intentioned. I think people want to know. And of course, when people want to know, I think as a scientist who is funded by public money, it's very important that I communicate uh, back uh, the research that we do and the understanding that we have. So I'm always interested in engaging in a conversation with people uh, trying to make them understand our perspective, it's been a bit difficult keeping track of the literature. So, TWIV has been useful in that sense uh, to keep track of all the literature, and you know, using that knowledge, then try to communicate what we think is going on. And, and of course, uh, we have been wrong all through the year, and I think that's 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 important that people realize that you know, scientists are not uh, omniscient, and we make mistakes as well. And so it's, it's been humbling and it's been an interesting experience just trying to talk to people, just doing public communication. Uh, even among friends who you normally wouldn't talk about these topics, everybody's interested in it. Uh, I've always been interested in public science communication. So for me, I, I see that as a nice challenge. Sometimes it's been frustrating, especially when you deal with uh, people that don't believe in COVID or people that are anti-vax. So that's also a different Kind of challenge that you have to deal with, and that's something that I'm also learning. How do you approach it? You know, not to get frustrated, not to uh, not to alienate people, but to you know to have a communication rather than an argument.
0: Right, right. Um, and I guess how how is the pandemic going uh, where you are? Obviously, we're I'm in Missouri, so we're sort of I think hopefully getting over our Delta surge. We were unfortunately one of the first uh, places to surge in the United States lately and it looks like we may be bending our curve. Um, What's it like there?
1: Well, here things are opening. I've been opening up the last couple of months. Uh, There are still some things that are restricted, like for example, clubs are not open. Uh, Festivals are not happening, but sporting events are going on. Uh, So there is uh, some activities where you can uh, be a crowd. Uh, At work, for instance, we still have to keep a meter and a half distance. Although disappointingly, we don't have to wear masks. Uh, I still make it a point to wear masks when I go to public areas. But uh, but that's been, I think, the attitude in the West uh, about uh, masks in general. Uh, so mask mask is not people are not putting masks on. The vaccine coverage has been decent, so most of the people that we do see in the hospitals tend to be unvaccinated. Uh, so the cases are pretty stable now. I think in the winter they expect maybe there will be a peak. Uh, we don't know. We don't really know what to expect. Uh, we don't know to what extent the vaccines are going to cover. But for now, everything is, uh, yeah, life is back to normal. In the last year, of course, it's been quite challenging yeah. having to work from home and not meeting people. We, are, we were restricted in the number of people we could have at home. For instance, at one point, it was down to one person. We even had a curfew after 9 p.m. Uh, but those kind of restrictions are gone. So life is more or less back to normal.
0: And do you still have family back in India? How's it like there?
1: Uh, yeah, a lot of family back in India. Uh, in India, well, their life is mostly, well, they, they, my mom was able to get a vaccine quite early on, so she was lucky in that sense. Uh, cases are, yeah, cases are not, not as bad as how it was earlier in the year. Uh, but of course, it, it depends on where you are, where they are, It's it's it's, it's okay. Uh, I still advise them not to, you know, go out in public areas too much. Uh, And uh, I think uh, at the moment, it's not been a big, big issue. Uh, At at the moment, it's not a big issue, of course. Uh, In the past, it was when there was a shortage of oxygen and beds and so on. Uh, But there's still COVID precautions. Like, for example, if you're in a hospital for other conditions, then, you know, you can't really have visitors uh, because of the COVID rules. Uh, in some parts of India, it, it is it is bad uh, because of uh, the rising cases and also unavailability of vaccines. And I think covering vaccine coverage is 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 a bit difficult in a big country like that. Uh, but I think once we get the vaccines to enough people, it should be it should be okay. But my, my family is doing okay, so that yeah, so that's that's a relief. But yeah. if you have to travel, then you know when we come back, we still need to quarantine and yeah.
0: So have you been able to go back to visit your family? Do you go back often? or
1: I, I haven't been in the last year. I was actually there in February last year, in February 2020, uh, January, February 2020. And then that's when cases were going up. And I think in February, just before I was about to fly, there were a few cases in Dubai and I was flying through Dubai. And I thought I might not be able to get back. And I thought, or if I do, I thought they might, Europe might close borders, actually. Uh, and then I was able to get back, and then they were very slow in taking action. Uh, But, yeah, I haven't been there since, and I don't think uh, this year I will be going because it's still an issue, of course. Even if I go, there's not much I can do outside. Yeah. Uh, Maybe next year, uh, January, February, uh, if things are a little bit better, uh, then I would definitely like to, yeah, go back.
0: Thanks for talking with us. Um, It was uh, great to hear about your research and we look forward to uh, hearing more about it in the future.
1: Yeah, great. Uh, Thanks a lot.
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com. Oh um.